Hello everyone and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Vidushan Hantaraja, and I'm joined today by senior football correspondent of the Independent, Melissa Reddy, Northern Football Correspondent, Mark Critchley, and for us first one out of the new season, Assistant Sports Editor, Jack Rathbourne is here as well. Two, hello to all three of you. Liverpool winning, Manchester United are not, and Kepa is making the same old mistakes again. That can only mean one thing, the new Premier League season is well and truly underway. As of last night, with Manchester City's first run out of the 2020-21 campaign, in which they beat Wolves 3-1, every team has now played at least one game, so what better time to assess where they are all at. We're going to start with the headline game of the weekend slash Monday's play, Chelsea versus Liverpool. Uh, Jurgen Klopp side running out 2-0 winners at Stamford Bridge on Sunday. Melissa, you are on hand to cover this game for the Indy. What did you make of it? How did the Premier League champions or the defending Premier League champions look to you? I think they were incredibly assured in possession and out of it, Chelsea were not in tune at all offensively. And... I know we'll talk about the red card situation and Kepa's mistake, but before that point, they'd only managed one shot in total, and that was from outside the box. They hadn't had any corners. So I think initially it was quite a stifling job on their part, trying to contain Liverpool, um, who weren't really carving out clear opportunities, but were pretty comfortable, I thought, in the game, and it felt like it was a matter of time before they did exert enough pressure and get the opener. And then, as we know, uh, Christensen fouls Sadio Mane, a great uh, ball forward from Jordan Henderson. And with all the talk of Thiago, it was good to remember that the midfielders Liverpool already had, uh, you know, were excellent, maybe not of the same pedigree or same technical abilities, but got them to back-to-back Champions League finals, uh, 1-1, and got the league done and dusted. But that red card for me was born out of the fact that the defender had no trust in his goalkeeper, and we saw why later on in the game, as we've seen so many times before. Kepa is at a stage, I think, where it's not just about the technicalities of goalkeeping anymore and the basics of goalkeeping, it is massively psychological. He expects that he's going to make a mistake. His teammates and his manager feel the same. Of course, they're getting Mendy in. He's currently having his medical to join Chelsea. And I wasn't surprised at all by Liverpool penalising Chelsea for their mistakes because I think they were confident that those mistakes would come with the goalkeeper um, and just with the amount of changes that that Frank Lampard does make. Jack, you also watched this game. Um, what takeaways do you think, you know, I suppose Chelsea fans can have? They looked okay, actually, I thought, uh, for the first half before Christensen's red card. Um, I suppose you're also going to talk about Kepper as well. Um, I suppose we'll start generally with the, with the first bit of that question in terms of what, you know, what did you make of it from a, from a Blues point of view? Yeah, I think it was a conservative start from Chelsea, but I think with good reason. Uh, last season, Liverpool obviously had the better of Chelsea as they did with pretty much everybody. But there was um, method to what Lampard was doing, I believe, in terms of 
the game at Stamford Bridge last season and also at Anfield in the, the league games, Chelsea definitely came on towards the end of those games. And I think there was just an element of with a reduced hand, given injuries and new signings not quite settled in, um, I think he was looking to sort of keep it tight and then uh, edge into the game and, and maybe look to pick some holes in Liverpool towards the uh, the midpoint and the end of the second half. But clearly the uh, the red card had a, had an impact and um, stifled that plan and um, or essentially wrecked it. But um, obviously, uh, given the um, the reduced options uh, in in key areas, there was a, a lack of pace. Given um, well, Pulisic's injury, uh, Ziyech, uh, not so much pace, but the the ability and accuracy to to put balls in behind, uh, and also Hudson Odoi not quite up to speed or in sync with what Lampard wants to do. There was there was definitely an over reliance on on Werner, who had a had a pretty good battle, I think, with um, Fabinho. I think. Uh, a lot was made of like whether he could be in a weakness for Liverpool at, at centre back. Um, I wasn't I wasn't too concerned for him. I think he did he did pretty well. And um, although Werner had had the better of him on a on a few occasions, he more than held his own. And uh, it, w- it was just very difficult for Chelsea to get out. And I think that that all stems from the uh, the lack of balance in that midfield. There's really not a uh, should we say box to box influence? Uh, can take and sometimes get there. Kovacic likes to dribble, but just a lot of isolated um, front men for Chelsea. And while they they did they, 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 after a nervy first um, five ten minutes, they they definitely settled and they sort of closed off the, the little pockets of space quite nicely. And um, Christensen, I did think actually was one of the better players for Chelsea uh, right up until that red card. Um, he was. Defending that near post pretty well, um, came to the rescue when, when Kepa was uh, a little bit hesitant coming out from goal and um, closed off the space before Firmino could could hit it into an empty net. So there was definitely something to be encouraged by um, had they survived that that red card and sort of eased into the second half. But ultimately, it just proved obviously um, far too much in the second half to, to survive with 10 men and, and Liverpool were, were always going to exert their pressure. To talk about Kepper, as someone that you mentioned just there in terms of having to be bailed out by Christensen, um, perhaps not as dominant coming off his line for that red card that means that Christensen thinks he's got a rugby tackle Mane. Um, he obviously gave the ball away for the second goal and I, I feel like that is... That second goal, the mistake for the second goal, rather, is more understandable given that's it feels like that's a natural consequence of playing out from the back. You're going to be closed down, especially by someone um, of Mane's speed. Um, but what do you make? Uh, you know, where are where are you? I suppose with this Kepa situation, Jack. Yeah, I think uh, the writing is certainly on the wall. I think Lampard's already spoken of um, the medicals happening uh, as we speak, and bar any issues with with quarantine, he's he's actually available for the West Brom game um, at the weekend. You'll see Caballero play against Barnsley. But yeah, I think uh, it's certainly a case of he'll he'll come right out of the team now. And um, I think it'll be tricky for Chelsea to shift him. So there might be an element of give him some time out of the limelight and eventually he'll, he'll get through a bit of luck perhaps with injuries. He might, might even come back into the team at some point this season. But it's just um, his uncertainty and, and the, it just, uh, it's infectious in the team and it, it spreads right across that back line and the, uh, the inability to command his area, while not, not an ultimate strength of Liverpool's, 
it certainly weakens Chelsea against teams that they might expect to beat because it is such a clear vulnerability to the team. Critch, um, we all know that Lampard spent a lot of money and, you know, beyond that first half, you know, perhaps I'm being disingenuous here by saying they laboured to that victory over Brighton in the opening weekend. Um, we do know it was always going to take time for everyone to fit in, but, you know, what have you made of, of how, I suppose, stale might not even be the right word, actually, but I'll have to use it here, of how stale things have been so far? Um, they have been stale, yeah. Um, and I feel like the worrying thing for Lampard is that almost the precedent has been set, if you know what I mean. So you've had one season where you brought in all this young English talent um, it's performed relatively well above expectations, some might say. Um, adapted well. Um, that kind of inexperience hasn't shown. And then you've replaced it with them with a lot of, you know, the, the finest young players in Europe, basically. Spent a lot of money on that. And like I say, I think the worrying thing for Lampard is that if we get to a situation at Christmas time where they aren't quite living up to the expectations that the lofty expectations that we're at in pre-season, then what if that logic suddenly extends to the boardroom and, and suddenly they realise, ah, well, the, the one place we didn't upgrade actually was <laughs> on, in, on the, in the dugout. Um, it's kind of like when you you refurnish a living room and you realise, oh, the fireplace doesn't fit anymore, or the big centrepiece in the room, you know, like this is, it, it's kind of like we they've, they've, they've taken a step in this direction having kind of built themselves up or at least the the media certainly built Lampard and Chelsea up last season as this this home of homegrown young talent and you know developing players very worthy and you know righteous causes and things like that um and now they're in this kind of awkward situation as well just to come back to the squad where you have Werner you have Havertz you have Ziyech so he's not fit yet um and you have to integrate these players into a lineup and yet also still try and stay faithful to this image where you were promoting players like Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, and I don't know, in, in one way you can look at that and you can say, this is very good uh, squad building and recruitment because what you've done is essentially you have um, built and developed a lot of younger players who uh relatively loyal to the club, most of them at least. Um, and uh, you, you've developed them into, you know, first-team Premier League players. Uh, and then you've supplemented them and maybe superseded some of them with, like I said before, the finest young talents in Europe. But keeping that dynamic and that balance and keeping everyone happy is going to be a big challenge for Lampard, especially a manager of his relative inexperience. And to be honest, so far, I think the biggest takeaway that you can have from Chelsea's first couple of games is that he just hasn't really been playing the players, the best players in their best positions. Um, Havertz has looked pretty lost when he was played out on the right-hand side against against Brighton. And he was deployed as a bit more of a false nine on, on Sunday, um, when really his, his best position is number 10. And, you know, that may be a consequence of just trying to keep everyone happy and, and, and trying to work through the squad. But, you know, it's only this is the thing about this stage of the season. We're only two games in... Um, if we come out with big strident appearance, uh, opinions on this on this podcast now, we're all made to look like fools soon enough. But um, yeah, I, I think at the minute you, there's a bit of scepticism about just just how Chelsea have started and and um, how Lampard's going to make the most of this squad. I think we discussed this when we were building up 
to the start of the season, actually, that it's never easy bringing in so many new faces. And it's not just any new faces. It's the premier talent, young talent across Europe. So all these players, like Timo Werner mentioned, are coming to Chelsea because they want to start. They want to advance their careers. They want to test themselves in the Premier League. And there were quite a few things that became apparent to me. One, obviously, helping everyone adjust and settle in as quick as possible with games coming so thick and fast in the most intense season we've ever known was never going to be easy. But moreover, we don't really know what the hierarchy in the squad is anymore, you know. Um, And while it should be, you know, about the collective and there shouldn't be any main man or main men, so to say, every squad does have some of the dynamics where, you know, you get the the leaders and the new players that come in that have that status. That's one about, like, Virgil van Dijk did at uh, Liverpool and Bruno Fernandes did at Manchester United. I, I didn't really, or I couldn't work out how it was all fitting in at Chelsea. But these processes take a lot of time. And that's why I think when people were discussing Chelsea as title challengers, it seemed quite far-fetched because there's so much they have to do at the same time. Well, speaking of, uh, I suppose, challenging for the title, uh, Liverpool, well, it's, you know, it's worth talking about them. Everyone was going wild for Thiago after a very short first 45 minutes in red. Um, I suppose you, for a player like him, he couldn't have picked a, a better 45 minutes to play, really. Opposition down to 10 men and... Tune up pretty quickly as well. Um, it looked for a long time that Liverpool wouldn't buy anyone, and then suddenly, not only do they have Thiago, but they also complete the deal for Diego Jota as well. Um, for an initial 41 million from Wolves, uh, Mel, do you want to explain how both uh deals came about? Because am I right in thinking that certainly Liverpool aren't, aren't exactly a cash rich? team right now but they've done these deals in um i suppose in, in very roundabout and very smart ways yeah to start off with tiago i saw a very funny tweet that he's playing the game at such a chess level that he even conceded a penalty so allison could save it and get his form back because from the restart the goalkeeper has been actually one of liverpool's uh, main concerns which I had done a piece after the opening weekend suggesting that, you know, Virgil van Dijk and, and Alisson weren't performing at their optimum, but Liverpool aren't particularly worried about that because that will restore. But that tweet about Thiago <laughs> was was very funny. Um, in terms of the transfers, I think the way the deals are structured um, are very important to note. With Thiago, £20 million pounds for a player of his caliber is just startling another five million pounds based on you know whether Liverpool go on to reach success in the Champions League and Premier League with him being integral to that that's also um they wouldn't mind paying that because it means they've won uh domestically and on the continent what they've set out to do in terms of Diego Jota I think the really, really instructive aspect of that deal is that Wolves, for the first year, 
were prepared to take 10% of the total fee. So that's the first payment. And they were also in talks with Watford for SAR. And Watford did not want to deal in structured payments or weren't as flexible as Wolves in in how they wanted um, payment to be dealt out. I think the important thing to note with both those transfers is that people probably weren't expecting Liverpool to do business just because they were being quite measured. But it was always a case of trying to do what they needed or wanted to do in the best way possible. And obviously, especially with transfers, there's so much impatience around. But I think Liverpool have shown, again, in terms of recruitment, that they really understand what benefits them, what suits them, and how they can get the best deals of the line, but with the players for the positions they really want. Is this a kind of change attack then from FSG? And is it uh, representative of, uh, I suppose, um, Jurgen Klopp's increasing influence that he's able to, I suppose, you know, on his own, not necessarily on his own accord, but I suppose through sheer will kind of, you know, ask for these deals to be done and then they get done? I don't actually think it's a change in stance. Obviously, the Thiago deal is different to a signing Liverpool would usually make because of his age, his in- injury history, uh, the fact that they always think long term. So, you know, the planning for the next five years and such. And the core of the squad is they need to make that younger or, you know, foresee a way where they're already planning for when, you know, the front three and the midfielders are all beyond their peak. So in that regard, it didn't really fit with their usual policy, but this is a world-class midfielder. And it always reminds me of when Sir Alex Ferguson, when Van Persie became available, he said, you just have to do it. And I think that was the case in this regard. In terms of Klopp and FSG and that dynamic, Um, Klopp and Mike Gordon, the FSG president who runs the club on a day-to-day basis, and Michael Edwards, the sporting director, are all very close. And actually, it's often Mike Gordon and Michael Edwards, in terms of incomings, who are letting Jürgen Klopp or telling Jürgen Klopp, we have to get this done. It doesn't matter how much it costs. Um, Which was the case with Van Dijk. Klopp was like, oh, you know, all that money. And they were like, we have to get it done. Uh, with Thiago, he wanted to wait until uh, he trimmed the squad first. And they were like, no, we have to get this deal over the line. Um, so I think there is a little bit of a misunderstanding about their relationship and how it works. And there are still people that believe Klopp is not getting what he wants, but he very much is. And that relationship is very strong. Grand, right. Well, that's all we have time for in part one. Part two will be with you on the other side of this break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hello and welcome back to part two of the Indie Football Podcast. And having discussed Chelsea Liverpool before the break, we're on to other matters such as Manchester United 1, Crystal Palace 3. Uh, now, with Liverpool's win of the bridge was obviously the standout result, but this feels like the most pronounced and certainly one that it's worth pouring over, especially with old boy Wilfred Zahar doing the bulk of the damage with a brace. Critch, you watched a lot of this kind of Manchester United performance over the last few years. Was this more of the same? Are the problems new and deeper than they first first appear? Or are we just losing ourselves a bit in the fact that this was just one game? They haven't had a proper pre-season various issues relating to injury and fitness and positive tests and quarantining and this, that and the other. Tell us how we need to feel, Critch. It is worth going through the mitigating circumstances, I would say. So you have some of the ones that you mentioned there, which are that they basically haven't had a pre-season. Um, the Europa League campaign finished 35 days before this fixture, I think. Uh, they had about 10 days worth of actual training time. They had one pre-season friendly. They lost it away to Aston Villa. Um, and obviously within that time as well, <laughs> aside from any kind of things going on at the training ground or football matters, you've had the you've had the club captain get arrested and uh, convicted uh, and appeal against his conviction in, in Mykonos. You've had Mason Greenwood's problems with England. Uh, you've had Paul Pogba testing positive for COVID-19 and then starting this game, which surprised me to be fair. Uh, and I think you could, you could, you didn't look at his best, if we're honest. Um, and yeah, well, I don't know. There's Aaron Wan-Bissaka as well was was uh, quarantined because he travelled to Dubai when he actually kind of wasn't supposed to and has had to um, miss some training because of that. So there's a lot of problems falling on top of each other. And I think, as I've said elsewhere this week, like if, if, if there was just one of those, you could probably ignore it. The accumulation of them, I don't think you can. But at the very same time, it's exactly what you said before in terms of I, I tweeted after the game, yeah, am I am I just going to have to write the same article twice a week every week for another season? Because it feels like this was exactly the sort of performance that we've come to get a bit used to from from United, certainly under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And in fairness, perhaps not over the last six months. I think since the arrival of uh, Bruno Fernandez, they've had that. But inside the club, they always talk about X factor in terms of signings, and I don't think you can argue that Bruno Fernandez certainly has that X factor. Um, and he's managed to, whether it's through his kind of risk taking, his ambitious passing, his sense of adventure, just a general kind of, you know, he doesn't he doesn't play safe, and I think that has dug them out of holes against teams who like to defend in low blocks and sit deep in the past, like teams like Crystal Palace. But if he's not on it, and if Pogba's not on it, then you really do struggle to see where the creativity comes from. And you struggle really to see where Solskjaer's, <clears throat> excuse me, Solskjaer's style of play is meant to, you know, what what, what kind of, uh, I don't know, like structures and systems that he's working on in order to create that as well, independent of his players. So I feel like, yeah, this is exactly the same sort of thing that we've seen before. In fact, if you think back to the defeat against Crystal Palace at the start of last season, this game was practically the same if you take out the contentious penalty. It was a situation where Palace go ahead, United struggle to get back in, eventually get a foothold in the game, and then while they go in search for another goal, they get hit on the counter-attack again. And 
you know, it's a bit of an indictment, really, that despite the signings, despite all the talk about transfers as well, that within like a year, there's still not been any progression there and that they're still serving up these kinds of results. And so, yes, while there's a lot of mitigating circumstances in their favour, I mean, they're not the only team to start their season start their season late. And off the top of my head, uh, Aston Villa and, and Manchester City both won and Manchester City last night looked pretty impressive while doing it. So, you know, it's it's not it's not the excuse that perhaps people are people are using it to be. So yeah, I, I feel like it's an interesting one to watch. The back end of last season, we saw that they got better at these sort of games. Maybe this is a bit of reversion to the mean, and yeah, it's one to keep an eye on. Uh, before we go on to talk about the rest of United woes, it is worth um, saying that Crystal Palace were, were very good. Uh, Jack, I suppose Wilfred Zaha, excellent again. Um, where do you think? Where do we think his future lies? Because it seems more and more that part of the, as certainly as my understanding of it goes, that Palace want a certain amount of money for him in part because United are taking a cut of whatever they get in terms of a fee, so that bumps it up. And while obviously they they haven't been happy with the fee with the um, bids they've got so far, there seems to be more and more understanding between Zaha and the club that there is a number that people have to hit, and if they're not going to hit that, Zaha's going to be still be a Palace player and he's still putting in performances like this as well. I think that's very rare for, you know, for both parties, actually, for a club to back their player and a player to stick to their club, despite having that mutual understanding that, you know, their future might lie elsewhere. Yeah, undoubtedly. I think uh, you've got to credit Zaha for bouncing back this season, because I think by his standards, he was, he was relatively average last year, but mixed in with some bright spots, obviously, because he's, he's very capable of individual brilliance. But just the way he, he has harnessed a frustrating situation for himself, um, which is kind of his, of his own doing, given that the length of a contract, um, he's got three more years left. So if he really did want to leave, then perhaps he shouldn't have committed quite as much. But just so impressive in the way that he is harnessing that frustration on the pitch now. And he, he obviously has that explosive nature to his game, but the, the composure now and the way he sort of he has ice in his veins, uh, as you can see with that that second goal where he he sort of um, calmly just dragged it back into the corner is so impressive, and, and he just embodies everything good about Crystal Palace at the moment in terms of uh, allowing Roy Hodgson to to have that dangerous threat on on the counter attack, and then just allow Hodgson to sort of put the the pieces in place um, behind Zaha and the um, the quick pacey uh, forwards in midfield and also at the back and. Yeah, it looks like a really good setup there now. And um, Zaha, in terms of his future, I I, I just see it at, at Crystal Palace. I, I don't I don't believe that uh, there is a there is a club that values him as much as Crystal Palace do. And I think that just that is just uh, symptomatic of um, perhaps a very unique era in the Premier League, where sides outside of the, the top six, when they do come across a, I think it's fair to say he's not quite world class, but he's He's getting there, and performances like that at Old Trafford certainly will elevate him to to be in that category. When you do come across a player like that, and you're not quite in that certainly Champions League, Europa League status, then that player is worth infinitely more to you than it, it could possibly be for a side like Everton, who were linked with him. And I just and I just think that Crystal Palace will, will hold tight because as soon as you lose players like that, you you heap the pressure on players like Townsend, players like uh, 
Eze, who's just come in. And imagine the pressure on Eze had Zaha gone straight out the door. I mean, it, it, you could see Crystal Palace sort of uh, spiring a, li- a little bit when uh, all the focus would be on a player like that making the step up. Now he he's just very happy to to come on off the bench uh, every other week, start a few games and. It's all because Zaha just shoulders so much of a burden and um, I just think he's worth too much to Palace to let him go at this stage. What about Roy Hodgson? A lot of people were tipping him as the first manager to um, to be bin this season, but two wins from two. Old dog learning new tricks? Yeah, quite quite possibly. I think uh, he, he's been fortunate in, in terms of uh, the squad dynamic. Uh, we know we've spoken about Zaha and, and Eze, but yeah, Andre, um, Jordan Ayew is... Uh, absolutely brilliant in terms of his work rate and the way that he he is able to complement the the other players there and and also Andros Townsend I think you, a bit of a masterstroke from Hodgson to bring in Eze and you almost saw Townsend maybe edging towards the exit but that seems to have sort of uh, injected a little bit of motivation in him and now they just have so many options it's it's quite rare really when you look at sides outside the the, the top six or seven to see such depth and I think you you look at maybe what they could do in the transfer window they might get one more in but they've added Batshuayi who you assume eventually will come in and start games but they've got, they've got so much depth I mean Kuate starting at, uh, at the back just um, against against United but you think maybe they need someone there but they've just been unlucky with injuries at the moment you think Tomkins, Cahill, uh, Dan and obviously Sacco right there now. Um, so they've, they've got plenty of options. And you look at Mitchell at, at left back, perfectly adequate um, st- steps in for Van Aanholt. Uh, it's just it's, it's a really nice um, underrated job he's done in terms of working without masses of money. And I think you, you have to credit Hodgson because he is under pressure, not just from us neutrals. I think Crystal Palace fans certainly maybe getting slightly restless with the, the style of play, but. In terms of like a lack of room to manoeuvre this squad, um, given the lack of riches, like I just outlined, I think he's done brilliantly to to make them such a versatile team. Well, speaking of money, um, well, Mel, we'll move on to you. Not so much for the money side, but um, specifically to talk about Ed Woodward, uh, who spent his entire summer chasing after Jado Sancho. With Borussia Dortmund pretty resolute that the England international won't go for anything less than the asking price of 108 million. Only Donny van der Beek has arrived so far and he scored on the weekend when he was brought on for his debut. Um, Deadline's less than two weeks away. Do you reckon United not getting Sancho would represent a major setback or do you think it's worth them for this fortnight at least focusing on on more pressing issues such as a centre-back or a left-back? I think it would feel like quite a disappointment, primarily because of what a magnificent player he is and is one of those who can fill in, you know, when Messi and Ronaldo are no longer at the top of the game and you'd suspect the likes of Sancho and Mbappe to be jostling for the Ballon d'Or on a regular basis. So because of the player he is, the high ceiling he still has, the excitement and United are predictable, he would help with that weakness of theirs. That's all negativity, but there are more pressing concerns. And I think we get caught up sometimes thinking that cosmetic changes will fix everything. I think United are one of the clubs that have proved previously, no matter how much you spend and who you bring in if the structure 
and the philosophy and the vision and the people in charge of the decisions are not correct, then it doesn't matter who the names are on the pitch at times. And I think Critch raised some very important points there in terms of having to write so regularly the same sort of match report. And I think the issue with United is they're so geared for counterattack and they're very geared as well for individual brilliance, which, you know, talk about transformative player Bruno Fernandes when he walked in in January, the run that they were on owed so much to him coming in, taking the responsibility, being the main man, just switching it on and inspiring everyone around him. But that has a lifeline, um, or sorry, that has a shelf life. And it's, I, I don't see a um, strategy without the ball in terms of just when teams sit back, when it's not individual brilliance that's breaking them down, I don't see what the the strategy is. And I, I don't know how many signings will appease or, or make that better or rectify that. Because for me, it's more, I think I want to see more in terms of the coaching side of things, the element, because transfers are not the answer. And I think, like I said, United have been one of the clubs that have proven that to be the case. I feel like that, that might be, this might be one of the first times that you could, you know, that if you flew a banner over Old Trafford with that slogan, transfers are not the answer, um, it'd probably be one of the more, one of the more well-acknowledged banners. Um, from one side of Manchester to the other now, though, um, City, a distant second last season, started their delayed campaign with a win at Wolves on Monday night. Uh, with that man, Kevin De Bruyne, again, proving he's pretty good with a goal and an assist. Coach, uh, you were at Molyneux. How did City look in their first outing? Um, pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. I was, um, you know, the first half was set better than the second half, certainly, you'd say. But then again, like almost like I referenced in the last answer about United, they have their own mitigating circumstances, if you like, there. You know, they haven't had a, a pre-season either. They, they've, not, they've not played a single friendly, in fact after um, the exit from the Champions League. <clears throat> it was just the day before United from the Europa League. Um, and they've obviously had these problems the last few weeks with the players testing positive for COVID as well. It's three now. Um, Emirate Laporte, Riyad Mahrez two weeks ago. And then... <laughs> my mind. Ilkay Gundogan yesterday as well. Uh, and so Laporte was missing from the, the from the matchday squad yesterday. Mahrez on the bench. Gundogan's missing, and also Sergio Aguero's out uh, for possibly a further two months with the same knee injury that he picked up during the restart. So when you think about it, they were missing the best defender, they were missing their most prolific striker, um, and they filled the bench with uh, like three kids basically that they'd taken from the academy. Uh, and this is, you know, one of the wealthiest clubs in world football that we're talking about. But that didn't really seem to affect the performance as much. Um, I thought I was I was really quite impressed with just how quickly they settled down into the game. Uh, Guardiola was using a kind of four-two-three-one that we he's not used so often before. Time and again, you know, every so often. But uh, it was in play last night, and I thought what was particularly good about it. I wrote a piece afterwards was that he had kind of double pivot, if you like, of two holding midfielders with Rodri, 
who um, struggled a bit last season in his debut year just to get to grips with English football and to adapt. But alongside him, Fernandinho, who'd obviously played in the centre of defence and was really, I think, a huge miss for them just because he's he's so good at the kind of intelligence and the, the, the nous that it takes to, to play in that position. Um, what he's also good at is the little <laughs> tactical fouls, if you like, although Guardiola doesn't I'd like to admit it. You know, that, that is something that Fernandinho excels at and, and the Rodri didn't quite pick up to the same to the same extent last year. So having those two alongside each other made them really solid through the middle, I thought. And that was particularly important because they're against Wolves. And Wolves are one of the only, well, they, they did the double over City last year. Uh, United were the other team to do that as well. And, you know, if you think about Wolves and United, you think about two kind of defensively compact, low block, but quick on the counter-attack teams. And that's exactly who City had struggled against last year. And that was largely what was responsible for a lot of those those nine defeats that they suffered in the league the most of Guardiola's managerial career. Um, so, you know, I, I wrote in my report last night, last night was the little bit, it's the first game of the season, you don't want to draw too many conclusions, but it did feel like a little bit of a litmus test, just a little bit of, you know, significant in terms of how they were going to approach these types of games this season because they they just couldn't they couldn't handle them last year. And from that perspective, I thought, although they tailed off a little bit in the second half, and perhaps you can explain that because of all the circumstances and stuff that we've mentioned, I thought I was generally quite impressed with them. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I picked them. I picked them to win the league title at the start of the season, our preseason pod two weeks ago. <laughs> it's funny how like your perceptions and stuff change just for the matter of two games. And I was swaying towards Liverpool, particularly after the Thiago signing, but. I don't know. I, I generally think it's going to be a very close race between the two, perhaps not to the same standard that we expected of the last two years. But yeah, I think I think City City certainly showed up last night and, and that's a warning to, to Liverpool and to the rest of the teams in the uh, in the top flight. In, in, in terms of this prospective title race, how important is Fernandinho going to be? Because obviously there was a period where he was tried out as centre-back, um, tried out probably put some... Yeah, probably not entirely accurate because he was, you know, a justifiable option there um, and did have good games there as well. And you could see the thinking from Guardiola. But, you know, where where are City going to benefit the most from him, I suppose? Well, yeah, I mean, the thing about Fernandinho is that he's 35 years old and <laughs> he's defied this, uh, defied, you know, time basically for since, since Guardiola's, like, second season when he... Uh, the, the first title winning season where he was probably the best defensive midfielder in the league and he probably was for the year after as well. And I think it's no coincidence that those were the years in which City won the, the, those titles when he was the fulcrum of the side, if you like. He could initiate, um, you know, all, all the press, if you like, went through him. He was the guy picking up those fouls, like I said, but also legitimate tackles as well and interceptions. You know, he was just picking everything up in the middle of the park. And... I guess the only question is whether he can still do that. You know, we were asking that question two or three years ago. Um, I think now it's a little bit more relevant because Guardiola said himself last night he did struggle for fitness a little bit last year. Um, they do have other options in there now with Rodri. You know, the thing two seasons ago was that they were looking for this Fernandinho replacement and trying to get one in, and whether it was whether it was Frankie De Jong, whether it was Jorginho, um, or you know, all these other alternatives all those deals seemed to collapse at the last second and it meant keeping Fernandinho there. So they were always looking to to get this succession plan in place 
Um, but I think last year it proved it was a little bit too early for it. And so I imagine, look, um, I don't know, maybe 35 years old, maybe a few plays like 20 games or like 1,500 minutes, something like that comes in for these specific jobs, like last night away at Molyneux, um, against teams that City tend to be vulnerable against. Uh, you know, if, if that ultimately makes the difference from, and means that they pick up points in places where they didn't pick them up last year and they can maintain the same level of performance in the other games, then that's going to be a huge a huge benefit for them. And so he is important in that way. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I, I think the only concern would be his age and just whether he can fulfil all these minutes in, in what is already such a, such a compact and such a difficult season. Jack, uh, just to talk about Wolves now, um, they were outplayed pretty comprehensively in that first half, but then looked more like themselves in the second. And you could maybe say that one, if they took taken one or two chances, then we've got a completely different outcome. But I suppose you can say that about most games. But we know talked about the need for, for signings before the deadline after the game. They've always operated with this smaller squad. And, you know, now that they've lost Jota, um, you know, we can understand why he wants to reinforce. With Nelson Semedo actually being someone who could be a Wolves player uh, by the time this goes out, actually. Do you see other areas where they need to strengthen, let's say, you know, to offer some assistance to Raul Jimenez, who at times seems to be doing it all, all on his own? Yeah, possibly. I think the the loss of Jota is is almost a perfect storm for Wolves to to cash in on, on his, I suppose, his peak value since he, he joined the club. And I think the, the emergence of Podence is actually... Well, in theory, it has the potential to to make Jota's um, departure quite forgettable. I think, given um, how lively he's been over the end of last season, and actually last night, I think after the the first half where City just one and two touch just sliced them to pieces. I mean, it's really re- uh, effective and efficient game plan by Guardiola's side. But um, once they sort of settled into the game and sort of uh, bridged the gap between midfield and and, and the attack and were able to sort of um, transition much much quicker. They they found so much space in behind, and they do have those players like you like you said. Semedo is going to arrive, which is going to release you, you would think release uh, Traore a little bit more. Podence, the way that he drifts um, into little pockets of space, he's he's so effective, and they obviously have the number nine to to finish it all off. So um, I think Semedo will be a, a really a really uh, important signing for them. And I think uh, at the back you, you get a full season out of Willie Bolly. Uh, Cody's still still pretty pretty strong. I think Saiz looked to me like a, a real weak link in that first half, but he, he has been dependable for for Nuno for for a little while. Um, so uh, I guess he he'll, he'll show some loyalty to, towards him. But just really excited to see how Fabio Silva does, and um, there's a lot of potential there. And I, I, I doubt we'll see his see him scratching. Uh, the ceiling of that potential with this season, but just a, a really bold move from Wolves. And I think you want to see that from them. They want to start start punching a little bit further up the table and, and maybe risking a, risking a bit more because I think they, they have now the options with um, the way they operate in the transfer market to acquire these um, very uh, sort of high potential players. So I think last night was actually, even though in the end it was 3-1, as you've already outlined, there was real potential in that second half to to be level or even ahead, and just super wasteful at times. Um, but yeah, once they they sort of settled and, and realised that City did have some vulnerabilities, um, notably down their their left side, I think uh, Ake maybe 
a little bit of a teething issue in terms of the line. He, him and um, Mendy were operating on um, just not quite um, a cohesive unit, uh, that City back line, which, which was understandable given, uh, given uh, the makeup with um, uh, Stones and Walker as well. So, yeah, not, not, not always lost, I don't think, for Wolves, uh, given uh, Jota's departure. But you're right, Semedo's arrival will be massive and um, Nuno's job will be to, to make sure Silva can sort of emerge in, into the Podence role of last season and Podence can sort of uh, step up and, and operate um, in the Jota role. And I think, lastly on that, um, Podence certainly has a bit more versatility to be effective in a three or a two, whereas clearly Wolves' main issue last season was enabling Traore and Jota in the same system. And when they did move towards that three, it just didn't quite work uh, from Jota's point of view. So, yeah, from Nuno's perspective, I think he'll he'll be excited by the um, the uh, the challenge of getting a little bit more out of his squad. Mel, um, from the signings alone and from from what you've seen of Liverpool so far, do you think there's enough to close that vast gap between Liverpool and Manchester City? And I suppose from a, from a City perspective, not just close it, but you know, go, finish ahead of Liverpool by the end of the season. I do not think anyone is expecting such a great gap at the top, regardless of which team is at the summit. Um, last season was was pretty ridiculous. Uh, Liverpool weren't expecting to be in that position. I don't think City were expecting to tail off so much. Um, and both teams had very different motivations heading into the season, but I think that would keep them... And, and restore them to the campaign prior where, you know, they just pushed each other so much. I can foresee that happening again. I think the greatest uh, thing about City yesterday, you know, Mark was talking there about all all the factors, the, the COVID cases that they've had, no real preseason, no friendlies, their ability to perform and, and that first half in particular where they were so dominant and... Wolves are an incredible side, especially at home. They're very, very tough to play against. And City made it look so effortless. The fact that they were able to deal with all the the obstacles that they'd faced so well, I think is, is a good, very, very good sign. Because perhaps in the past, that's been the one thing when everything's not going their way. You have seen the manager and then the players not react in the best um, way way to those setbacks. But you can see that now for me, and I think when we built up to the season, we spoke about this, it's still Manchester City and Liverpool in a league of their own competing with each other. Um, and I think games between them will be the best in the league again and the decisive bits of this league. Um the rest are just in a battle for top four and whatever else. Fair dues, fair dues. Well, on that subject, Mel, I will just keep you on for this one. But uh, who else impressed you this weekend? Or rather, or you know, even conversely, didn't impress you? We'll take Manchester United as red. Yeah, Manchester United, obviously. <laughs> like, we, like we've spoken, um, just way too predictable. Um, and, I, and I thought Palace could have done more damage against them. Arsenal, hugely impressive 
In terms of the dynamic that they have going there, I've spoken about Mikel Arteta's influence on the pitch and off the pitch, and I think you can really see it coming to the fore. Um, the chemistry between Lacazette and Aubameyang is is extraordinary, and if I'm not mistaken, I think they've actually combined um, they're their second highest combination since 2018 for goals in the league. So keeping Aubameyang there was hugely critical for Arsenal. They managed to do that. Um, Son and Harry Kane and the way they combined, that was brilliant, especially since Southampton completely outplayed Tottenham in the first half and yet somehow found themselves at the end at the end of such a hammering. That was a really important result for Spurs. Um, was impressed by Brighton, who have quietly done very well away from home in the league, um, which which is a very, very good sign because, you know, I, I don't think they want to be struggling uh, and having to worry about relegation and form away from home, I think, helps in that regard. There's Everton as well. You're just naming everyone in the league? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Everton have been fun, and fun is a really important thing. Oh, Leeds. Leeds have been so fun as well. (laughs) Critch, if there's anyone left, (laughs) what do you make of it? Is there maybe a player or a team that have... um, Impressed or disgraced himself this, this weekend in your... <laughs> um, well, when I knew you were coming to me, I started going through them, then Mel slowly ticked them all off. Um, I was going to say Brighton as well, actually. Uh, I know we've already just mentioned them, but I think um, you look through their 11 and it, it's, it's, just, it's just quite impressive. A group of, you know, their recruitment strategy for the last couple of years, seeking out kind of underappreciated young, often English talent, but not necessarily... Um, they've, they've put together a side that kind of out of nowhere because I didn't really have them doing much in my in my preseason predictions. Didn't have them going down, but not really challenging or anything, not overachieving. But you look at the side there, and it's talented. And you know, I, they, they played against Chelsea. Did 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 well. We were unfortunate to lose that game. I thought they've obviously got a great result at Newcastle as well. Dominated the game from the first like five minutes basically. And now they're up against Manchester United. So it can only get better, I suppose. <laughs> uh, Jack, what about you? Who's um, Who's been your surprise package so far? Yeah, just, um, I was uh, waiting for, for my pick to, to be named. But it's uh, shockingly not been named. Uh, Aston Villa I, I, is a sort of a rare, rare positive, I think. And three Premier League wins at home in, in a row for the first time since 2007. I think that's pretty remarkable, despite their their period in the championship. So I think Dean Smith, um, many many people's picks to probably go down. So despite the um, the influx of new signings, I think you've got to give him credit there. I think uh, they're building something at home. Uh, after the restart, They even the games where they, they weren't winning at home, uh, Chelsea at home, I think that was a, a fortunate win for Chelsea. So yeah, l- looking really good. And um, individually, same team, Emmy Martinez, a penalty save on his on his debut. Uh, old decision for him to go up there. I think he could have maybe gone abroad and played for a, a side at least in the Europa League. So, yeah, uh, credit to them. Building a nice little um, fortress now at Villa Park for um, to build a uh, another season in the Premier League. Well, just before we say goodbye, um, 
much like Gareth Bale returning to Spurs, we welcome back an old classic in hero and villain. Um, Critch, I've got you down for villain here, which says a lot. Um, but is there anyone in particular that you'd like to lay into after this weekend's play? Uh, okay, I haven't, I haven't given him as much thought to this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, go, <laughs> I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with uh, the second wave. That's the villain because once that's. I know. I'm sorry to bring it all serious, but you know. The news today about the fans not being allowed back in the grounds from the first of October. I'm sure we'll speak about that over the over the coming weeks. But just the well, the devastation that that's going to wreak on on English football below the Premier League, even at Championship level, even at Premier League level. To be honest, you know, you, you're talking about clubs. I think the Premier League estimates about 100 million um, will be lost each month that fans aren't in the stadium, and that's in the Premier League. Um, it, it's going to devastate clubs much lower down than that clubs um, like the team I support down in the national league. Um, so yeah, <laughs> sorry to be a downer, but that's, that's, I think that we'll say that that is the uh, villain of the week, COVID-19, the villain of the year, you might even say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, if that doesn't win every week, then we're kind of screwed. Don't we? um, yeah. We've got to get our priorities straight. Um, I feel a bit guilty throwing to you for a positive after this, but um yeah, who's your, who's your hero of the week? Hopefully, we'll say vaccine one day. There's um there's a bit of pressure on him to be fair, but uh, it's Son uh, Son Hyung Min against the world it seems. So um yeah, four goals from the weekend. Um, I I mean I'm a massive fan, but I just I, I, even I would doubt whether he's got enough to to come out against uh, that villain. So um but yeah, amazing <laughs> um amazing uh, clinical finishing. But yeah, I think um. Sorry to uh, yeah be unable to to lift the mood after that down a bit. Yeah, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks again to Mel, Mark, and Jack for joining me, and thank you to you all for listening. If you are a new listener, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating as well because that is very useful for new listeners to find us uh, make sure you're also following indie sport and indie football on the various social media accounts to keep up to date with everything that's going on and we will see you next week goodbye